When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize... please, good people. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords, is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor, just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they put me away. Shut up, will you? Shut up! Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help, help, I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? Welcome to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 34, Arthur and the Legend. In the... Beginnings of the ninth century, as Wales was basically cut off from its other British support, it became obvious that Gwyneth was becoming a power in the landscape. It had influenced Welsh history for quite some time, even at that point, and had become one of the premier countries within the Welsh landscape. Uh, having taken control of much of the Northwest, controlling all the way over to the border at times, uh, and at times controlling Powys and sometimes not, sometimes being influenced by Doithbarth and sometimes influencing them. It was a major player in politics with the English. 
And at that point in time, a leader comes to the throne known as Murfin, and Mervin the Freckled, to be honest. And he was not a kingly type. He was not noble in birth, but became the king. And in process of time, his supporters and defenders wanted to prove that he was a worthy king. Thus, one of the major works that was done during his lifetime is now called by us the History of Britain. It is the basic Welsh version of history going back to ancient times to that point in time. It is the Welsh answer to Bede, and it was supposedly written by a man named Ninius. We've talked a lot about Ninius and about the history of Britain, and we've talked in depth about the fact that there is some concern about its legitimacy. Part of that concern comes in the form of a man by the name of Arthur, who we, of course, today uh, call him the King of Britain, King of England, um, the hero of Wales, the hero of Scotland, the hero of Cornwall, the founder of the Round Table, the husband of Guinevere, the friend to Lancelot and to the other Knights of the Round Table, who was betrayed by both Lancelot and then eventually his uh, his uh, nephew, Modred, who would then kill him. And eventually his great sword, which he had pulled from the stone, known as Excalibur, would be returned to the Lady of the Lake as he went to Albion to recover from his injuries, according to the legends. Well, that's the somewhat later Middle Ages telling us this. At the time that Ninius is telling us this, he's strictly talking about an Arthur who is very much a human being, very much a soldier, and very much not noble by birth. He calls him the the head of battles. He is the war leader, the war general. He is the mighty man who proves by his ability that he is better than the so-called kings of Britain. And in that, we probably have more to think of politics of the ninth century than we do, unfortunately, in the actual legend of someone named Arthur. I know a lot of people are, are very wound up in this legend, both on the pro and the against side. And I, and I, as I've often said, I, I kind of fall in between a lot of times on these more controversial discussions. Arthur is a key cog in Welsh history. He's a key cog to a lot of histories from a lot of people in a lot of periods of time. Most of what we, in quotes, know about him comes from sources who are questionable at the least such as the history of Britain, uh, dubious at the best, such as uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, who uh, his version of the history of the kings of Britain has been called one of the better works of fiction out there. Um, it has been stretched upon by French authors, by English authors, by American authors, to authors farther afield than even that bending and twisting and turning the story so many different ways from Sunday that we have 
so many versions of this story that we can't tell the difference between what may have been a figure who may have existed and the figure that is defined for us now. He's been wound up in legends over the Holy Grail, uh, in tons of different stories and ideas, both from local and foreign ideals and writers. His legend as a Welsh legend really does exist in the history of Britain from Nennius. It doesn't really, it exists in a couple of other spots and places. And, and like I said a, a little while ago, the Mabinogian gives us a concept and an idea as well as some of the stories that are surrounding Arthur. But again, nobody can really trace this back that far into early Middle Ages or late antiquity, depending on your flavor of choice. So what have we got? Who is this figure? Does this figure exist? Is there evidence? Is there anything that we can point to to say, yeah, we think we know who this is? The short answer is no. There is no King Arthur. There is definitely no King Arthur. There's likely not even necessarily a battle leader or general named Arthur. If there is, he's very obscure, even amongst the sources. And we have very few sources. We, we already know this. But I can tell you the two that are closest to the subject, Gildas and Bede, talk nothing of Arthur. Now, one might point out that Bede is a Saxon source. Of course, he's not going to talk about a famous and historic general who achieved a lot for Britain. But he does at times. I mean, he gives them bad versions in his interpretation. But he does mention if there is a traceable figure from a period and gives them some definition of whom they are. I mean, it's him who gives us Vortiger, and it's not actually Gildas that gives us that name. Uh, which is definitely not a Saxon story. Uh, he gives us a lot of the kings in the early Gwyneth period who fight with Northumbria and with Mercia, and they're successful and, and not successful, depending on the situation. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle mentions no Arthur at all, even though it's written in the time of Alfred. There is... In effect, no evidence current to the actual possible person to say that Arthur existed. And that's where we're going to start from. And I, and I know that's, for some people, that's going to be seem sort of depressing. Oh, we're starting from that. Uh, but that's the truth. That's the reality. But here's what we want to talk about that I think points to certain things which I think we need to keep in mind. Just because Arthur, the person, may never have existed, doesn't mean a lot of the stories that surround him in the earlier periods, not the later mythological stuff, haven't, you know, they, they have within them basis of truth. Just like Gildas's stories and Gildas's writings aren't to be taken as completely fictional, that there is within them an understanding and some way of being able to crib some information that helps us understand what was going on in Britain at the time of the end of the Roman period and the beginning of a new paradigm for them. And what Gildas always points out is that there was an obvious mess in Britain, be it from Picts, Irish, Saxons, whomever, within 
the British population, there was, it was destabilized. Things were poor. And it's hard to say where this began and where it ends, just simply because there's such a lot of vagueness surrounding this. We don't have a lot of British sources in talking about Roman Britain. We don't have a lot of Roman sources talking about Roman Britain in the end of the 3rd century and 4th centuries and into the 5th. We just have nothing really to go on that tells us a lot about the situation. So what do we have? Well, we have some battle poems, apparently, which uh, Ninius collects. Uh, like I said, the stories that, that we have, which may or may not be brushing of some historical truth. Um, you know, a lot of times when we look at myths and legends and think about it from the standpoint of more modern times, when we look at the idea of the founding fathers in the United States or, or look at heroes of your particular country, these people get mythologized. Some of the stories that surround the founding fathers aren't true, but they become so ingrained in our, in our psyche that even people who aren't American know them. We know those stories. We know about these people, you know, and, and the legends themselves become almost as true as the actual people. And this isn't dissimilar. This is a founding father, in a way, of, of Wales. So, of course, it's mythologized. Of course, the historical figure starts to fade in the background rather quickly. So, who could it be? If there's any trace of a historical figure who led battles of any type in, in the end of Roman Britain and the beginning of the Welsh Britain uh, that we have currently, the only name that comes to mind out of Gildas is Ambrosius Aurelianus. It's a name that's very vague. It doesn't give us a lot to go on. The story is such that all we know is that he becomes the defender of Britain. He comes out of the woodwork, and, and as we've mentioned earlier, he is considered to be of noble birth, he is considered to be important enough to be mentioned, and he's talked about as if he is a person to look up to because his grandchildren are the ones that are the problems now. <laughs> and Gildas... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month 
That's code WelshHistoryPod50 at Factormeals.com slash WelshHistoryPod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. uses him as a model for what is right and what is good and talks about how he fought battles and won battles. Now, the problem is, is that we don't really have a list of who, what these battles are. Yes, there is a list of battles that were fought, some of which might be historical, some of which might not be, or that they're actually not as big as they're talking about. Because the one battle that, that Gildas mentions is Baden. We know that one. We know that's the final one that sort of makes peace before his time really kicks off as a person. But what we don't really know and don't necessarily understand, and I think some of the scholars have done a good job of trying to figure this out, but we don't fully know who everybody was fighting and when. What Gildas says is that in chapter 25, that Ambrosius takes on the role of war leader and he fights the Saxons and they win some and we win some and they win some and we win some. And then finally, at some point that ends. Now, interestingly, he then goes on in chapter 26 to talk about wars, not amongst the Saxons and the Britons, but rather Britons and the rascals. And the rascals are traitors. They're not barbarians. They're not the Saxons. They're people who don't agree with whatever side Gildas sees himself a part of. So these are Britons who are revolting. And I've often wondered if part of the what we're seeing here when he describes this, and, and the person who, who, the academic who's brought this up is, is Guy Halsall, who has studied a lot of this and has done a really interesting book where he let's be honest, kind of takes apart a lot of the Arthur idealism. Uh, in fact, he his book is called The Worlds of Arthur, and in it he does a very good job of actually showing you what the real history is, talking about the sources, talking about what they can be trusted with and what they can't be trusted with. He talks about the archaeological evidence. He talks about a lot of different things. And, you know, he puts a big spin on the idea that 
that we are looking at history not through a lens like we think we are. We're looking through an idealized version of history that is not being taught to teach truth, but is being taught to teach a greater truth. And the greater truth is a religious truth, a moral truth. So thus, if you stretch history or if you change history to fit that moral truth, that's okay. And that's kind of how a lot of medieval writers thought. And we could say even some of the classical writers likely thought like this. This is the same reason why we have classical writers putting words in people's mouths who probably never said these words. In fact, likely never said these words. Um, because often it just sounds good. Like, yeah, of course they would have said this. You know, why wouldn't they say this? This is obvious. Or they're trying to get across, as we mentioned so often before with Tacitus, a political agenda, and they want to be able to make sure that that you understand what that political agenda is. So within that, you have this concept of a political agenda, a moral agenda, all of these things wrapped in these stories. And so they took from history stories and turned the stories and the history into one thing. And one could argue Bede does a bit of this as well. So this is how we get this. And foundational stories are important. They're key to a lot of how people see themselves. Rome isn't Rome without Romulus and Remus. Um, You don't have Hellenistic Greece without the legend of Troy, the Iliad and the Odyssey. You don't have Israel and Christianity without the foundation of the Bible. All of these things create a foundation, and typically these things are based on myth. And no different in Wales. We are basing the foundation of a country on a myth. And that myth is Arthur. Now, could Arthur be Ambrosius? Possibly. He doesn't fit the category the way that the history of Britain describes it, which is as a war leader, not as a noble. But again, we're talking about a document which may have a political agenda to point out that not being noble doesn't make you kingly. So they're trying to push that agenda. Uh, which goes against even some of the Christian ideals, even at that time, about what makes a king. And this concept may have been stretched and changed this person known as Ambrosius into Arthur. Now, the history of Britain has this Ambrosius within it, doing something on his own that isn't related to Arthur, yet somehow is. And it's really difficult in some ways, because Ambrosius is wrapped up into Vortigern, And they brought this idea that Vortigern and Ambrosius are closer together in time so that they can have this figure, Arthur, be there for the victories that come against the Saxons. And so a lot of this story-making seems to be about trying to push aside those that may have been mentioned before and create this other figure. Now, outside of this... When we look at Arthur, the the reality of it is is so much of what we know isn't what was the idea of this figure. But the one thing that we do see a lot in Welsh history and, and in Welsh legends is this concept of a figure who goes away only to return when he's needed. Uh, they have this with um, Magnus Maximus, uh, the concept that the emperor was going away to win the empire and then he would come back and and help Roman Britain. Or 
that Ambrosius would go away and come back, or that even Owen Glindur, for example, was said to have gone away and hid. That's why they never found the body, because he's not really dead. And Arthur is much the same way. He goes away. He goes to Albion. Uh, he hides away, only to be called again when his country needs him. Well, the argument, of course, now is, as well, uh, didn't his country need him quite often? <laughs> and where was he in all this time? So, But this is a common tale within the Welsh uh, idealism and legends and the way that they dealt with things. And you can see how Arthur would be a very attractive figure for them because at a time when the Welsh were being defeated quite frequently by the Saxons in that period of time, in that 8th and ninth centuries, where it seemed to be a defeat piled on a defeat piled on a defeat, and they were constantly getting humiliated and having to fight them off and, and weren't making a lot of progress. And the Britons basically had been pushed back by the Saxons for, at that point, nearly a, you know 500 years. They really weren't in a position of strength. And the reality of it is, is when people get in those positions, they, they try and remember and reminisce to times when things were good. I mentioned to this before, and figures who were a part of that ideal become very idealized, become very much, you know, our, our old, wonderful leaders who knew and were so great, and now we're stuck with these bums that we have now. And quite often that creates a situation where a person who may just be a regular person is now all of a sudden lifted to a celebrity-like level and everything they did was just perfect. And Arthur becomes a part of that mythology and that myth-making. One could point out Robin Hood being a similar sort of circumstance who may have been just nothing more than a legend or possibly just a, a, a robber who didn't do anything particularly nice or lovely and never gave anything to the poor. Uh, all of these stories and legends and ideas, people are idealized. And so we get that from Arthur. Arthur is an ideal. He is something to have ambition to be like. In a period when your country is struggling, he's something to look to as like, this is the person I'm going to model myself after because if he can win, so can we, if we'll just do what he did. And so in the history of Britain, they write that he carries an image of the Virgin Mary with him when he wins at Baden. And thus, through Christ, he defeats the pagans. Well, that concept has power. It's showing that God shined and smiled upon him. No different than when in the older days, in the so-called pagan days, when the gods would show their favor on the various people. And thus, you know, King Leonidas in the Battle of the 300 has the gods watching over him. The battles for Athens, the gods watch over, you know, Athena watches over her, her city. And all of these things still continue to be the case even after disaster happens. You know, the, the Jewish writings in the Bible point to the fact that the Jews only lost possession of Israel or Judea because they went wicked, not because God turned away from them. And that concept, that understanding that, that 
a deity would only turn away from you in your wicked ways, you know, when you turned away from him or her, as the case may be. And so again, we're pointing to the fact that, that Arthur is holy. Arthur is something to be desired to be. His Christianity was worn in his sleeve. You know, unlike nowadays, where everybody's kind of a bit of a, a sinner and, you know, a little too real. And they are not like these old leaders who used to be so good. And Gildas decries this kind of stuff. He's big into nostalgia. He talks about how the, the victors of Baden were somehow better than the current times and the current descendants of these people. You know, the grandson of Ambrosius is now basically a scumbag in his opinion. A lot of these ideals and views remain unchanged. And when we look at Arthur, when we consider who he is, you'll note I haven't brought up a lot of history. I haven't mentioned a lot of historical things. I haven't gone into the stories that much because really we don't have a lot of stories, not legitimate, close enough to almost be history stories. There's stories that have obviously been written to speak to people at a certain period of time. You know, it's it's a lot like the Hengist and Horsa idea about who founded Anglo-Saxon England. And it's that same legend making. And legends are great and they do certain things, but they have to be acknowledged for what they do. And for Wales, Arthur is an image to look up to. He's a person that we have as a model for us. And because he's so nebulous, there's no way to prove or disprove he existed. So great, he's even better. And a lot of this is the problem because you can't point to a single thing that says Arthur was here. You can't point to anything other than a tiny bit of evidence that any of these people existed outside of the writings of certain people. And so there's where the difficulty is. There's where you know, academics are get so frustrated when it comes to the story of Arthur because so many people get excited about the idea of this man that you almost can't argue against them because there's so much belief that this person existed that if it's almost religious in nature. You can't go after the ideal because the ideal is impervious to logic or argument. You can't say this may never have happened because then people go off and say, no, that's not true. How dare you? You know, and, and so we have to be more nuanced when we look at history, historians, academics, archaeologists, they always have to be more nuanced in the way they think, the way they approach subjects, the way they look at them. You can't just accept what the sources tell you because the sources do lie. And the Sources are biased, no different than we are, really. And I, I said this from the beginning, and I've said this about the Celts, and I'll say it about the Saxons, and I'll say it on Arthur. You can only accept the sources so far before you have to start to say, well, is there enough evidence outside of this source to say this person or this item or this idea exists? Uh, I recently had someone ask me, is there some evidence or some writings of the Celts that we can look at? And I had to kind of say, well, no, there's there's no physical evidence that the Celts migrated in the Iron Age and became, you know, what we know of in Britain. That ideal is great, but it's not necessarily hooked to reality. We have to be more nuanced. We have to look at these things in a more nuanced way. So at the end of the day, when we look at Arthur, understand that a lot of the stories are wrapped up in the politics of medieval periods particularly the 
late medieval and high middle ages where the victories of the English have driven the Welsh, the Scots, and the Cornish away from one another. And so thus, in sadness, in desperation, in looking for inspiration, they look at older times and figures that stand out. And maybe there was stories about an Arthur that floated around at that time, and maybe they're co-opted in. And maybe this character exists, but these battles weren't necessarily associated with him. Maybe these battles existed. Maybe there were up to eight battles that were fought, and some of them were fought against other Britons, and some of them were fought against Saxons. You know, it's really, really difficult to say. And we're treading through very thin water of evidence. And the next few episodes are going to continue on that vein. We're going to talk about what little we know But what we do know and what we will know and where we'll pull information from history and information from archaeology will help continue to give us an idea of what went on. It won't give us a great idea. We can't point to this and say, oh, yeah, this tells us exactly what was happening. But it does give us an idea that that if we have an open mind, we can look at things and examine things and come away with it feeling like, yeah, Even if Arthur's not a historical figure, the legend of Arthur is important. It's important to the Welsh population of the time. Because, like I said, it's no different than a belief in, you know, Moses or any other figure who has a murky past that may or may not have existed. You know, it depends on the way you feel about it. And so we have to be careful not to tramp on everybody's idea. But we have to also understand that within those ideals, there has to be some semblance of reality. You can't just sit there and say, oh, yeah, this guy existed and there was this. And look, there's that round table at Tintagel, of course, you know. And to accept that is to kind of laugh in the face of history and, and archaeology over the last hundred years. So I think it's it's wise to accept that this was important, but understand it in the context of the day that it was written and when it was written and why it was written. And hopefully I've helped you with some of that today. And uh, if you have any comments or questions or things you want to bring up with me, you can contact me in numerous ways, such as on Twitter at John DMP, that's my personal Twitter account, or at Welsh History Pod. You can also reach me reach me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. You can also, of course, visit our Podbean site, which is Welsh History Podcast.podbean.com, which is where all these episodes are stored. Uh, you can obviously check us out on iTunes, leave us a rating, a review, Stitcher as well. I know many of you listen through other means and methods, so you know, as you do, please be sure to comment, you know, if you have questions, if you want me to answer something or conversely if you just want to have your say on some issue i'm more than willing to to take some of that on board and and at some point here i i might even have to do a a listener feedback section where we talk about some of the things you guys have have discussed and presented because i think you you guys have a lot to say i'm i'm not a professional historian or archaeologist i'm just someone who decided that because of his own background and interest to start this podcast so Certainly, I look forward to any feedback from anyone who wants to give it. And if you want to talk to me about it, you know, I, I look forward to it because it's it's amazing and it's awesome. And as I've said before, if you want to listen to anything else I've done or do, if you want to check us out, you can check my group out on distractionsmedia.com. And uh, 
I hope you guys have a good day, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.